My name is Ian Rotherham, I'm Professor of Environmental Geography at Sheffield Hallam University and we are standing on Sheffield's main river, the River Don, at uh, Meadow Hall, right by the M1 motorway. Known as Meadow Hell to some people. <laughs> <laughs> this, this river was biologically dead in the 1960s. We had a few mutant uh, sticklebacks. Uh, that was it, there was nothing else. It was biologically dead. And then uh, gradually we've got the river self-cleansing. It's come back. Uh, the Environment Agency have been putting fish passes in to get round the historic weirs. And we've got young salmon coming back into some of the river down, further down. But we're here to talk about a very special plant, which yeah. I can see in front of me. <laughs> and we're going to go and have a look at a forest of those in yeah. a couple of minutes' yeah. time. Welcome to the Ways of Water, a podcast series exploring our English waterways through the arts, ecology, industrial history, well-being, and the deep mysteries of water itself. Presented by me, David Bramwell, and with the occasional guest appearances from the inimitable John Shuttleworth and his neighbour Ken. Having grown up in Doncaster, or Donny to those in the know, when I was a kid, we never went near the Don. It really stank. And as Ian Rotherham said, it was declared biologically dead. And while we need to acknowledge the seriousness of how our rivers continue to be polluted by intensive farming practices and bad management by our privatised water companies, the younger me would never have imagined salmon would ever return to this river, or that a certain fruit would be growing by its banks. Not just one, but a whole forest. So we've got a really lovely view here of the Don, and trees hanging over the water, and apart from the pervasive sound of traffic, and the river's quite serene, isn't it, yeah, in comparison? Yeah. So all the way along here, you're getting quite dense stands of uh, fig on both sides, particularly on the far side, there are quite a number coming together. Fig is one of the most iconic species in this ecologically fused system. Does this imply that the Sheffield steel workers went around chewing fresh figs? I suspect not, because they would have been very expensive. However, a local delicacy, I don't know if this is a, maybe it's a national thing, uh, but certainly very big in the years of my childhood, in the 60s and 70s, were fig biscuits. And essentially they're a bit like tomatoes, where the seeds go through the digestive system um, and survive. So the best places to get tomatoes are old-fashioned sewage farms. Because right. the seeds pass through the gut, they then arrive ready fertilised at the sewage works, and hey presto, you get really good tomatoes. The same with the figs, the seeds pass through the human digestive tract, so the seeds are already there, and they're still there in the river as we see it today. They're there in the system. So you've got um, combined sewage systems, which in a time of flood spill out some contaminated water into the river. That's carrying the seeds. Urban areas are naturally hotspots anyway, but in Sheffield it's particularly so because we're using the river water to cool the steel factories. At that time, there's very little regulation over anything that you put out into the river or indeed the condition of the water when you take it in and put it out again. So, there's, you know, the riparian owners were free to do what they wanted. So, they were taking water out, using it to, to cool the, the hot metal, 
and then putting it back into the watercourse. It then goes down, it's taken out by another factory, and then it's released again. And the upshot was that during the height of the Sheffield Industrial Revolution, because you know this is the this is where the global industrial revolution began here. Um, the River Don was running at about 20 to 23 degrees summer and winter. So if you're a fig tree or a fig seed, you think, I'm in the Mediterranean. This is good. <laughs> So we're about to cross over a bright green iron bridge. No, or are we not? We're not. We're carrying straight on. You tricked me. <laughs> Look at the size of those boughs going over the river. Yeah. Great big things. So that's the fig that's been there probably. I mean, that's the biggest uh, tree on the bank is, here, that isn't that is, it? It's a massive one. Uh, yeah, that's a good specimen. How old that is, who knows? You know, probably 50, 60, 70 years at least. One of the other things with the figs, which I'm still quite interested in, I haven't got to the bottom of it actually, here we're getting something that is more akin to a, a fig forest spreading yeah. along here. This is a monster and you can see some others on the far side, we can't get through the thicket there. Is this the same this is species a, of fig as well, the, as the last one we just saw? You see, it doesn't the leaves look, look different. It doesn't look like it, does it? No. So I don't know, I mean they are very variable, if you look here, they're very palmate, so there's a lot of change, but that to me looks rather different and those certainly look different from the one ones that we were looking at earlier and this is dense with figs yeah isn't it? yeah but you managed to get the fig protected yeah the fig is a protected species at least in sheffield and i say that was really on the grounds of its importance as a an iconic plant for local heritage it's a marker of the industrial revolution Uh, here, this is native wildflower, but also something people grow in the garden. It's a wash downstream. It's a stunning big which, sedge. Which looks almost like a spider plant, but yeah, just a plain, yeah. plain green. Yeah, it's a very big thing. And that's mixing in with the balsam, with the nettles, uh, with the Japanese knotweed, with the sycamore. Uh, so you've got this amazing mix of natives and non-natives with the, the buddleia growing in the footpath there. Um, it's this recombined, recombinant ecology. And the process Do you want to explain again? Recombinant. Yeah, yeah. Re, is that the, am I saying right? Recombinant, yeah. Recombinant ecology. So it's basically native and non-native species brought together through urbanisation, globalisation, industrialisation, etc. And then natives and non-natives ultimately are mixing together and forging new ecologies. Now, not everyone is comfortable with this, and some of these species can be really uh, problematic, competitive species, and they can squeeze out the natives, but it is happening. We see we've got Japanese knotweed here. This looks like it's actually been sprayed out and controlled. You see these stark canes coming up. But essentially what's happening is the natives and non-natives are mixing together. So here we've got nettle, knotweed, balsam, sycamore, buddleia, and then a little dunnock has just flown mm. into it. So the natives and non-natives are uh, coming together to form through a process which I've described as eco-fusion so basically this is what it says on the label it's ecological fusion to generate new ecological systems this happens whether we like it or not you know we may want to promote and safeguard the natives and I subscribe to that but we have to be realistic that this uh, fusion process is happening and in actual fact if you look at it as an environmental historian which is part of what I do it's been happening for centuries 
under the vegetation here, you've now got the uh, invasive alien mink released by animal rights activists in the 1970s, mixing with uh, otters, a native that's recolonized, and water voles, and brown rats, brown rat being a very non-native invasive alien species. From Sheffield, I headed to Sprockborough to meet up with Chris Firth from the Don Catchment Rivers Trust to find out more about the return of the salmon. We're at uh, Sprockborough now, and uh, this, at this point there's a, a, a large weir. This was a, a major barrier to, to fish movement. Up until two years ago, salmon moving up the river couldn't uh, access beyond this point, but um, the Canal and Rivers Trust and the Environment Agency, in collaboration with other organisations, put a fish pass on here, um, and we've now got salmon reaching the outskirts of, of Rotherham. When you consider that this river, 30 years ago, was regarded as one of Europe's most physically and chemically degraded river systems, it's amazing how it's recovered. Um, I mean, nature is amazing when you consider the degradation, the damage that was done to this river, how, how far it's come in its, re its rehabilitation. If you could imagine the river in its original condition, there was, a, there was a ford across at Denneby where there is now 14 or 15 feet of water. You could literally walk across the river and all of this river system from there down to Sprock, all the river from there down to Sprockborough would have been a series of pools and uh, outcrops of rock. So the water would tumble over the rocks into deep pools. And those pools originally would have held thousands upon thousands of salmon. This river was once one of, one of Britain's finest salmon rivers. In 1548, it's recorded that there was no commercial interest in salmon because it was, it was fetching less than the equivalent of two new pence per kilogram. It was, it was shunned by, by the middle and upper classes. They wouldn't touch salmon. Um, only the very poorest in society would, would even consider eating salmon at that well, time. What were the rich eating then? From a point of view of fish, I mean, it was freshwater, generally freshwater fish that they ate. Uh, eels in particular were very popular. Um, pike, perch. These are things that we would never consider eating, apart from eels, of course. Uh, we would never consider eating now. Pike and chips? No. Pike and chips, it doesn't sound very appealing, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, it, I mean, it just gives you an impression of, of how abundant salmon must have been. And that, of course, is a, is a clear indication of how of, of the ecology of the river as it stood at that time. Uh, research carried out by a, a friend of mine, Colin Howes, who was the archivist at Doncaster Museum, revealed that the River Don once had the largest population of otters in, in Northern Europe. Well, again, that's a clear indication of just how, pro how productive the river system was because you know, one correlates with the other, doesn't it? Yeah, if, yeah. if there aren't plenty of fish, there won't be many otters. Yeah. Um, for six days of the week, you wouldn't see the sky. Trees in Sheffield grew slowly because they got all the dust and grime and soot falling out of the sky and also they got no sunlight. 
The seventh day on Sunday was God's day, the factories closed for day, and the sun came out if you were lucky. Um, so you have to kind of put yourself back in not to this rather lovely, sunny bit of urban river, but actually into a pretty grubby, grim environment, uh, on the banks of which almost nothing survived, and then into this vacuum, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and invasive species move in. Knotweed, balsam, figs, uh, sycamore, along with a dollop of native species like under the knotweeds, the bluebells, the anemones, the rest of it, and then by the 19, the, the early millennium, sorry, uh, otters back in under the knotweed. So, yeah, we've got kingfishers here, we've got herons in good numbers. There's a winter roost of herons uh, near the Hillsborough football ground, which can be up to 30 or more individuals. There's plenty to celebrate, isn't there? It's absolutely fantastic. Um, but it's not native, and it never will be native. It's this re- recombined ecological system. I mean, a lot of stuff is brought back. I mean, stuff was brought over by the Romans. Stuff was brought over even by the Celts. But one of the big sea changes, if you like, was the, the Normans, um, and particularly the, um, the Crusades. They were going back to the Mediterranean, they were going to the Near East, they were mixing with Arabic, Islamic cultures and bringing back all the goodies that went with that. And things like spices, if you read the history of the spice trade and how much these things were worth, because you hadn't got things like pepper, you hadn't got these things. Even salt was a highly valued commodity uh, in Britain, hugely, hugely important. And people are bringing back plants and they're bringing back things that are then cultivated at monasteries, things like figs. Um, there's a bit in the newspapers recently about how important uh, rhubarb is apparently. You can get there's a rhubarb extract which is being used now for some medical, but it might even be an anti anti carcinogenic thing. Uh, but hugely important. Well, read the history of rhubarb. Rhubarb was a secret uh, plant smuggled in through the you know the, there was like a rhubarb run from bringing it from uh, eastern Russia. Uh, as this incredibly highly valued plant uh, and of course part of it is toxic you know, if you eat the wrong bit it's quite seriously uh, nasty but the rhubarb itself is a very very important food plant it was regarded as a luxury uh, and it had important herbal medical properties and of course West Yorkshire is still the centre of Britain's rhubarb industry you can still see the rhubarb fields of West Yorkshire yeah Maybe that should be my next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ian. Well, it just remains for me to thank my guest and... Oh, oh hang on, this sounds like the post. Well, I think we all know what this is by now. Welcome to John Shuttleworth's fantastical and occasionally foolish facts from the weird but wonderful world of waterways. Thanks, Ken. You're welcome. Mad Jack Churchill insisted on fighting in the whole of the Second World War, armed only with a sword, bow and arrow and bagpipes. Not only did he survive, he also captured 42 Germans and escaped from a concentration camp. Close to retirement and after a spell in Australia, he returned to Britain, designed and built his own 16-foot surfboard and became the first person to do what? Uh, surf while playing the bagpipes? <laughs> no, Ken, but that was a very amusing guess. What then? He became the first person to surf the seven tidal bore. What a lonely. No wonder he was called Mad Jack Churchill. <laughs> yes. Bye-bye for now. Bye, David. Hope to see him bright on the pier sometime. Yes, that'd be lovely. Bye. Bye. Ways of Water was presented by me, David Bramwell, and with music by Oddfellows Casino. Find out more via drbramwell.com and check out Oddfellows Casino on Bandcamp, where you'll also find links to my album and book, The Cult of Water. Many thanks to all the guests in this series and to you, the listener. Watery blessings to you all.